Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Den bedste bog, jeg har læst, som giver kontekst for det drama, som Europa står i i øjeblikket, er skrevet af den britiske forsker Helen Thompson. Den hedder Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. Det fantastiske ved Helen Thompsons bog, det er, at hun genfortæller de sidste 100 års historie i Vesten ud fra energipolitik og ud fra sikkerhedspolitik. Hun viser i bogen, hvordan kampen om energien var drivende for hele den kolde krig, for det, der kom efterfølgende og for alt, hvad der er sket i det 21. århundrede. Når man læser en bog, så får man fornemmelsen af, at ideologier er en slags overfladefænomener over for det, det i virkeligheden handler om, og som de store magters militære og administrative centre er optaget af, nemlig at sikre energi til sin produktion og sikre energi til sit forbrug. De sidste 100 års historie bliver derfor til en slags kamp om ilden i moderne kontekst. Det andet, der gør Helen Thompsons bog helt fremragende og meget, meget aktuelt i forhold til den situation, vi er i nu, det er, at hun fortæller historien om europæisk sikkerhedspolitik. Hun fortæller, hvordan kort efter 2. verdenskrig var det faktisk fem europæiske lande, der grundlagde NATO og meget, meget gerne ville have amerikanerne med. Dengang ville amerikanerne ikke være med, for de ville helst have en verden uden interessesfære, uden alliancer, hvor der bare var et FN, hvor alle verdens lande kunne finde ud af problemerne sammen. Men sådan gik det ikke. Det gik sådan, at vi fik NATO, og USA blev ledende i NATO, og EU bevægede sig hen et sted, hvor man troede på, at økonomisk samarbejde var sikkerhedspolitik i sig selv. Fordi de europæiske stater havde vendt sig til historisk, at de største fjender var de andre europæiske stater. Så fokuserede man på, at hvis de kunne komme til at handle sammen i stedet for at føre krig mod hinanden, så ville man få velstand og fred på samme tid. Eksterne fjender var man ikke særlig opmærksom på. Og det betød faktisk, at man opbyggede en union i en af de rigeste regioner i verden overhovedet, som var helt ude af stand til at tage vare på sin egen sikkerhed. Samtidig var europæerne også ude af stand til at forsyne dem selv med energi. Vi var i modsætning til eksempelvis amerikanerne og russerne ikke selvforsynende med energi, og derfor lavede vi forskellige energiaftaler, meget berømt selvfølgelig med russerne, som vi bliver afhængige af. Og først da det var for sent, gik det op for os, at vi havde opgivet vores egen suverænitet, at vi ikke kunne bestemme over os selv længere, fordi vi ikke havde vores egen energi. Det er det store perspektiv, Helen Thompson ruller ud i Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. Og da jeg læste bogen kort efter invasionen, den 24. februar, tænkte jeg, hende må jeg simpelthen tale med. Hun har skrevet den bog, som er konteksten for hele det drama, vi står i nu. Så er hun også professor ved Cambridge University i England og aktivt engageret i den offentlige debat. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark. And especially good evening to you, Helen Thompson, who is with us from London, I guess. Pleasure to be here, Rune. Der var så mange spørgsmål, jeg gerne ville stille hende, og dem stiller jeg den samtale, der følger her. There's been a lot of books written about democracy and Donald Trump and capitalism and world order after the Second World War. But your book that came out a while ago with the fantastic title, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, is for me the best read at all to get the context of the situation that we're in at the moment, because you deal with the with geopolitics, energy politics, security and economy and democracy in one big perspective. So I feel that this is really 
the book that I recommend everyone to read to understand the situation that we're in. Can you tell us a little bit about the story behind the book? Yeah, that's very nice of you to to say. I guess that I, I started thinking about it, uh, writing a book like this in 2017. Um, so that was after the Brexit referendum, Trump's election, and also of the shocks of 2016, I thought right at the time as it was happening that the failed coup in Turkey was pretty important too, and perhaps in some sense the most significant of those three developments in the long term. Obviously, I wasn't really in any position to say that, but that's I just had some intuition that that was the case. Uh, so I wanted to write a book that basically did what this one did, actually plus a little bit more originally, um, which was to try and see the what was happening in 2016 whole, to try to see all the different stories that, as I saw it, were coming together over a long period of time. So in some sense, I wanted to write a book that put distance um, between the perspective that I was going to adopt and the events of 2016. But for reasons to do with my position in Cambridge in a, an administrative job that I had higher up in the, the university, I wasn't in a position to take any academic leave. So the earliest I could start writing this book was actually 2019, um, the summer of 2019. And the summer before that, in 2018, when I was working out a book proposal, um, I had a clear sense of what I wanted to do from that starting place, which was 2016 thinking, if you like, or 2017 thinking about 2016. And then what happened is, is that I was about six months in um, and somewhat behind, it must be said. <laughs> and then the pandemic happened. So this was like, February, March 2020, but particularly in terms of when things went really into a different mode in Britain, that was the middle of March 2020. And for a few weeks, I thought, I don't know that I can carry on with this book, because if I was trying to write a long history of the present political moment, and that present political moment was really the middle of the 2010s, and the, well, the second half of the 2010s, let's put it that way. And then the present political moment had just changed out of all recognition, Um, by this pandemic, about which I in itself had absolutely nothing useful to say, I thought, what am I? What on earth am I going to do? Uh, and then it only took me really two weeks to recover my nerve in the sense that I started to see the things that were happening, starting with the March 2020 financial crisis at the beginning of the pandemic, the collapse in oil prices that month too, and then in May of that year, the German Constitutional Court decision on quantitative easing um, and think that actually a lot of the things that were happening as a fallout of the, as a consequence of the pandemic actually fitted into my story, the histories that I was telling pretty well, uh, in, in some sense, perhaps too well. So that got my nerve back again. And I, I simply asked for three months more time to to deal with the pandemic and work out how exactly I was going to incorporate this, that, the pandemic into the analysis and in particular deal with the conclusion. And then I'd say the third sort of shift in the book really, which I'm pleased happened was is in the summer of 2020, I'd, I'd started to see, to become dissatisfied just as I was finishing the first real draft of it with... Um, the geopolitical story in relation to climate that I was telling. 
And I thought that I hadn't found a way at all of integrating what I wanted to say about the energy transition in the conclusion and what I wanted to say about the geopolitical history of fossil fuel energy, I, I, that they were too detached. And so I spent quite a bit of time thinking in the summer of 2020 about climate change and about the energy story in that respect. And really out of that thinking over the summer of 2020 came my the second half of my conclusion. And it made the book actually quite a bit better in the sense that I always wanted to end with the energy transition, but I didn't have a continuous story to tell about it. And I think what I found that summer was a way of, of doing, doing that. And, and then there was obviously an editorial process after that. But that was the last intellectual shift that I made of trying to find a way of, of, um, of making climate change, not just the end of the story for the new world, if you, the new beginning, if you see what I mean, but something where the energy aspects of it were continuous. So it was really, a, you know, it started out of the set of preoccupations of 2016 and it ended up in, um, in some sense, the energy freak out of the pandemic. I think that's also where the book, the first time I read it was before the Ukraine invasion. That That's where I was very struck by the book because you come from the geopolitics of energy policies. And when I read your book, I realized, well, this has been the driver of, of geopolitics for decades, actually. this And we don't usually think of that. Maybe it's my limitation, but we don't usually think of energy politics as being so central. I even get the sense that, you know, financial crisis was also to a certain extent catapulted by an oil, an oil crisis. The wars, of course, uh, we know that. Uh, and, and even the Cold War, there's a kind of this kind of an ideological battle on top of an energy struggle at the core. How, how central is this, this battle of energy policies in, in your view of recent history? Yeah, I think it's pretty central. I mean, I think that I started with the notion that it was really important to understanding the Cold War years and it was really important to understanding the post-Cold War years and that one aspect of it was really important to understanding America's rise as the dominant power in the 20th century, even though I wanted to tell a, a story about America's rise which stressed its weaknesses where energy was concerned in the first third of the 20th century, particularly its absence from the Middle East. And the fact that actually that Britain and France put themselves in a rather strong position in the Middle East as a consequence of the of the of the First World War. And then the more time that I spent writing the geopolitical chapter that basically covers the end of the 19th century through to the, the, the Second World War, the more I kept pushing the energy angle to it. And what really dawned on me, I think as I was writing those chapters. And in a way, it seems like, like you say, a really obvious point, but I just don't think I'd sort of put it to myself like this before, was that as the age of oil began, and it wasn't the age of oil in the way in which we know it, because it was the age of oil that was primarily about um, military power um, rather than consumer society. And coal was by far still the most important energy source economically. Nonetheless, is the European countries were freaked out by the situation, the energy situation. I think that they understood that. The governments in these countries understood that in the first decade of the 20th century. They understood that the United States had not only reached the Pacific and was now effectively a continental state with this huge 
land resource, but that it had this energy commodity um, that was going to change the world and it was going to change um, military competition and that the only other country that had it in a significant, anything like the same volume was Russia. Um, and that, that had some pretty profound consequences for European countries too, because you essentially have got, if you think about it, these two continental empires that have got this new energy resource. And then you have these European countries that have got used to thinking, or at least the West European, some of the West European countries have got used to thinking they're the most important powers in the world. They've got these empires, but actually they're in a really difficult position. And in some ways, then Britain and France address their problems by getting themselves an empire in the Middle East, Britain more successfully, I would say, than France in terms of the outcome of the First World War. But then that leaves this whole big problem for Germany. And it exists before the Nazis. It exists for the Weimar Republic because Germany is shut out. And that's the fear that in some ways has driven German policy, I think, in the first part of the 20th century, that they want to, Germany wants to be a, you know, a world power and it can't be a world power. And then actually some version of the problem where energy is concerned is right there back for it in the post-First World War world. And I don't think you can really understand German geopolitics during the interwar years, including during the Nazi years, and then the way in which Hitler pursues the war without seeing that, and in some sense, seeing the world from German perspective as it looked in, in 1919. And once I'd got that far with, okay, I need to recalibrate a bit about the first part of the 20th century, then you just start seeing all these continuities. So I started to see seemingly obvious point but in the first decade of the 20th century, then the United States and Russia are competing to sell oil into European oil markets. Move on to the 2010s, which is obviously the decade where I was initially intending I was ending. Um, and America and Russia are competing to sell gas into European markets. It's the same structural competition with a century in, in between. Um, and you could argue that this time around in the 2010s, it has very destructive consequences. It's very, it, it's very divisive within the European Union, particularly those EU countries like Poland and the Baltic states that regard being able to buy American gas as a lifeline. And those countries, obviously, most consequentially Germany, um, that want to stick with the Russia energy relationship that went back to the 1960s. So the more that I put energy into the way I was thinking about the first third of the 20th century, the more the history seemed continuous to me. And then that's what I was trying to do to try to like work out like how each set of problems, each set of predicaments in each era, just the attempts to address them just propelled problems onto the next. And in the end, we get to the present. I was very surprised that I didn't think of how deeply entrenched in our government, in our military efforts in our geopolitics that energy politics were before, because we've written 10,000 articles about climate change ever, <laughs> ever since Limit to Growth came out 50 years ago uh, this June. But but then when I, when I read your book and how much the oil consumption and the coal consumption has risen over the last three decades, then I, I thought, well, this is a lot more difficult than I thought. And we've written a lot of articles about how difficult this energy transition is. But, but you know, in late 80s, James Hansen came to Congress, explained it, and we had the Rio summit in, in the beginning of the, of the 90s. Everyone committed to these targets. And then you had the first uh, COP meeting in 1995, 
which you describe in, in the book, looking over what happened after we committed ourselves to these targets and, and how we kept emitting more and more. And as you rightfully put it in the book, we've lowered our emissions here in Europe and America. A lot of that has to do with the fact that we have a lot of production done in China at the moment. Is it at all realistic to meet these uh, Paris targets? I know it's a huge question, but it grows out I mean, of your book. I'm, the, I'm of the view that the only way in which the medium-term targets can be met, and for the time being, that means that the long-term targets can be met because we need a big, well, not just one technological breakthrough, we would need several technological breakthroughs to to change that is to reduce our energy consumption. I mean, so I think, you know, if you take what happened in the United States during the pandemic, um, the emissions actually fell, at least in 2020, by a higher level than is required for the United States to meet the target it would be at by 2030. So in one sense, I would say that if you concentrate on the reduction of energy consumption, these don't become so impossible targets. I think if you concentrate on saying, actually, all we need is more political will, all we need is to be really committed to renewables, all we need is to be really committed to green hydrogen, and we will get there, that seems to me where the, it's, that, that's completely unrealistic, because it just doesn't engage with the fact that renewables they are intermittent energy sources and that, that they, they can't provide a base load for electricity um, and that in order for them to do more than what they're doing at the moment on top of that issue, we have to electrify. And then there are certain things that are incredibly difficult to electrify, including, you know, like heavy industrial production. Uh, and unless people really engage with the issue of energy density, you know, and I can understand that actually nuclear aside that, We'll be doing an energy trend. We're trying to do an energy transition in reverse to what has happened before. So usually, certainly, I mean, gas is a bit different, but up to the point where we're going on to oil from coal, we're using ever denser energy. And then the energy transition, as it's conceived at the moment, is to go down from higher density energy to lower density energy um, again. Um, and you're not going to have the same level, I think, of energy consumption from that basis. So to be realistic about green energy, to be realistic about the energy transition, we need to think about how much energy that we're, that we're using. And that's where we get, I think, into the political difficulties around that because politicians have been, in Western democracies, have been pretty keen almost all of the time to try to sell the energy transition as something um, that's completely compatible with the way in which we live now. Okay, they might be willing to say, well... You need to, you know, like make your houses more <laughs> efficient, better insulation. But I don't think that they really want to challenge, for instance, like whether everybody wants to drive cars. And, and I think that those much harder choices are the ones that over the next five to 10 years, if not sooner, that politicians in Western democracies have got to engage with. And I think the car one's particularly significant because there's just been a presumption that the direction of travel is electric vehicles with electric vehicles where cars are concerned that it will again be a mass car ownership society or at least mass car driven society and that might be completely the wrong option it may be that that's simply not possible and that actually rather than being so committed to mass electric vehicle ownership and trying to bring the price down we should be thinking much more about um, building 
um, mass transport, public transportation um, systems, and particularly in those parts of Europe where outside cities, big cities where that is um, difficult. So it seems to me that unless we actually get realistic about the energy transition, we won't actually be doing it at all. So some people can sometimes think, I think if you try to be realistic about the energy transition, that you're just not trying to take it seriously. But I would argue it's the exact other way around that actually taking it seriously, understanding what is possible and the timeframes in which it is possible, that realism is the, is the necessary starting place for that. And I think it is funny that people love to talk about electric cars because that's just like driving the same car, but now it's electricity yeah. instead, instead of gas. Like you have these hamburgers without meat, and so it's <laughs> plant-based. It's you know, so it's kind of the same way of living, the same way of transporting, the same way of consuming. And it's a bit like Joe Biden, who says he wants to be the big climate leader in the world, but also wants to defend his country against pain at the pump and doesn't really and isn't really committed to to paying the price. Another great quality of your book, I think, is the way it sketches out the geopolitics of climate change with China vis-a-vis uh, America. And when I read your book, I, I, I started wondering how interested actually is America in doing this green transition, because it seems to be that they're strong, that they are more the independent country when it comes to to oil and gas, whereas the Chinese are leading on, on on green energy. How should we understand this rivalry in the green transition, in your view? Well, I think there are several different things um, here. I think if we look at it in the present position, China clearly has considerable advantages, uh, and they're concentrated around both the manufacture of solar panels, for instance, you know, where it's about two thirds of the, the market um, and metals uh, and certain particular kinds of rare earth um, metals, where it seems that in terms of the distribution under the surface of the earth, that China might be in an advantageous position. And even if it turns out when other countries do a lot more mining for metals, that they're actually as equally well endowed as China, that China's in a first mover position, it dominates the supply chains around the metals that are necessary for green energy. I still think that metals are probably not quite the same as actual oil and gas, um, which are in the distributed around the earth, under rocks and under the water in more arbitrary ways, I suspect the metals will turn out to be. But for the United States to really be serious about green energy right now in the way in which Biden wants to, uh, and seriously not in doing so, just simply help China's economy, then the United States has got to build a domestic manufacturing capacity around solar panels and wind turbines, and it's got to do a lot more on the metal side of it. And it clearly wants to. I mean, Trump declared a state of national emergency in the last months of office about metals. Um, and Biden, although he's called it something different, is effectively the same. But the Americans are playing catch up there and they know it. I think they're also very nervous that China might dominate the electric vehicle market. And I actually think that that geopolitical commercial competition about electric vehicles distorts the issues about whether it's possible actually to have mass car ownership with electric vehicles because the politicians get too, too fixated on the geopolitical competition part of it and not enough on the 
what are we going to do um, about it in terms of democratic politics? I think the Biden administration is, though, pretty serious about climate change. And part of the reason, though, I think that it is, despite the geopolitical problems, is I think that there's a reasonable understanding in the US, including in this administration, that actually there are fossil fuel energy reasons, leaving aside climate change, to try to move away from fossil fuels. And in particular, that there are oil reasons for doing that. Um, because what we can see by 2019 is, is that those supply constraints around oil that were very evident in the mid 2000s, um, where for a few years, the production of oil stagnated at a time in which Asian demand in general and Chinese demand in particular um, was accelerating, that some of those issues were back by 2019, despite the fact that the world economy had been bailed out, you might say, in this respect in the 2010s by the American shale oil boom. So I think that there's a sufficient awareness as well by 2019 that the, the Western companies in Iraq were not going to be able to have the Iraqi oil industry produce anywhere near as much oil as was hoped in the years after the Iraq war, certainly by 2010. And so quite a number of them were selling out. They wanted to get rid of their investments there. So I think that the Biden administration always had a second throng, if you like, to its concerns about green energy, which was, we don't just need to do this for the climate crisis. We need to do this because there's big oil problems coming down the road. And I think part of the cautiousness, perhaps, in the Biden administration about encouraging the, the shale boom back again, which it's not been doing, is, is because there's a question about, as the energy transition happens, uh, and the oil supply problems continue is is in some sense who's going to be the last country standing <laughs> with oil and I've got no evidence for this you understand <laughs> but I suspect that the United States wants to be the last country um, standing whether I, I doubt that it can actually be in some respect but I think that they're quite cautious and, and that would fit with the way in which American presidents have actually long thought about they've actually been quite strategic about America's oil supply in this respect. So you now when Roosevelt makes the, his arrangement with uh, the Saudi king in the middle of the Second World War, the United States is easily the world's largest oil producer. It's still going to be the world's largest oil producer prior to the shale boom until 1970. But Roosevelt's sinking ahead to the point in which the United States is going to need to import oil and wants that Saudi relationship. And usually we don't think, I think, that democratic politicians have kind of 30-year timescales but Roosevelt, I think about this, he did. If we then take the, the same discussion to Europe, I think mm. here, I think we have the feeling now that that security and, and energy politics has come together now, that it's a somewhat changed game that we have just after the Russian invasion. And the it's very interesting, I think, to see that we're all drunken on this unity phenomenon. <laughs> and, you know, and I... It's another question whether it will last, but at the moment, you actually see people in Europe demanding stop to import of, of Russian mm. natural gas. And you see it not in Italy, of course, but you see it in Germany and you see it here in Denmark. You see actually people are willing to pay a price to rid themselves of natural gas. And you see leaders speaking about uh, energy in, in 
very different way. It's not just the green vice chancellor in Germany who, who says that it's freedom in it. You hear it all over the continent. This war that we're in, this very special situation, do you think it has the potential to dramatically alter the energy setup in Europe? I think in some ways it already has. I mean, because I think that the the days when the German government in particular can simply say that Russian energy dependence is a commercial relationship or sometimes go further than that, a kind of necessary relationship of economic interdependence between Germany and Russia, which is the basis of peace in Europe. And you kind of still hear some of those arguments being made in the late 2010s, even after the Russia's military intervention in um, Georgia. I think that's gone. I, I think that it'd be very difficult to imagine a German chancellor can go back to justifying um, Germany's gas dependency on Russia in the same way. And clearly the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is not coming back again. But, and this is big buts, obviously the Nord Stream pipeline, one pipeline has still been you know, pumping oil <laughs> through the whole of this um, crisis that the land pipelines through Ukraine and through Belarus and Poland from Russia have still been bringing oil to Europe. And I don't think it's possible to change that very quickly because for Europeans to say we don't want to buy any Russian gas any longer, that means that they're going to primarily be competing for liquid natural gas imports from the United States and from Qatar, possibly from Australia, but it's a long way to bring gas from Australia to Europe. Um, and that means they're going to be competing with Asian countries for, for that gas. And already during the course of 2021, and we could see that at the, particularly in the last months of last year, so before really this Russia issue has come to a head in any way whatsoever, gas prices in Europe were escalating and they were escalating at a time um, or let's put it differently, they were in, in good part um, because the countries that were buying liquid natural gas from the United States and from Qatar were facing such intense competition from China because there was a big increase in China's demand for gas once the Chinese recovery from the pandemic began. So it's all very well for many Europeans to say, um, we'll do whatever it takes to support Ukraine. And we don't want to buy Russian gas because it makes us feel morally compromised. But do they really want to pay the kind of prices that are necessary in order to outbid China in particular, but Indian uh, energy companies um, as um, well? And even if that they do, the US shale gas boom, it, you know, it isn't infinite. It, there still will be supply issues at a certain point. And... I suspect that the corollary of this will be, again, will have to be reduced energy consumption. And I see this morning that I think it was the German energy ministry said the most useful thing, or not just the most useful thing, I think he pretty much said something like um, that he encouraged every German household and every German firm to use as little gas as possible, particularly for the next few days because of the ultimatum about paying for gas imports from Russia in, in rubles. So I think that that's the real choice is, is, yes, some dependency can be reduced, but it will mean higher prices and um, it will mean ultimately using less gas. 
Um, and I suspect that as things become difficult politically, that actually we'll see significantly less reduction in dependency on Russian gas um, than many hope right now. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll go back to the, the language that was used to justify the energy relationship. We won't go back to being, hearing about it being a commercial relationship, but it will be the same kind of kind of we don't like it but we have to do it attitude <laughs> that prevails in terms of buying you know um oil from the saudis or indeed oil from iran and gas um prior to the sanctions that trump put back on to iran and curtailed iran's exports and i think that's the thing that's also forgotten i mean you know one of the things that i think that european governments might hope is is that the iran nuclear deal is resurrected that will bring not only uh, raining oil back onto the markets, but it will allow European companies to get back into Iran again in the gas sector, which is what they're particularly um, interested in. Um, but it doesn't take much to imagine in a few years' time when some big crisis ensues with what Iran's behaviour is in various ways, that it will be, why do we allow ourselves to become dependent upon Iranian gas? Another theme at the core of your book, which is uh, I didn't know very much about, is the question of security in Europe. And I was actually surprised to read that the first NATO members were European, that, that the Europeans wanted the, the NATO alliance and the Americans actually did not want it. And then we ended up with this situation. I think you put it like that. We came reliant on external force in Europe to defend ourselves against external enemies. Something it's, mm. it, it's, it's something like that. How did we go from wanting to defend ourselves and maintain our own security to this situation that became the standard afterwards? I'll ask you later whether that's changing at the moment. Mm. But what's the what's the history behind this very special thing, actually? This continent of war decided to leave the question of security against external threats to America. Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, I think that what, what happens in the... 1947, like 1948, is that Britain and, and France in particular, but also um, Belgium, I would say is quite significant in this story, is that they are worried not only about the Soviet threat, but they're worried still about Germany at that point. And they're trying to deal with the economic devastation that the Second World War uh, had um caused and they're worried um that there is a still a that they still have a, a a vulnerability as a consequence of their the economic devastation to either soviet move or a german move now i think that the german one you know is overblown particularly given the the devastation that was also you know ensued in germany obviously during the course of the second world war but it but it is there and the the truman administration is not keen uh on providing military security for britain and france either in relation to the soviet union or in relation to 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 germany what will be west um germany and but they are keen on west european integration but they see that very much in terms of we want West Germany economically to be the engine of growth for a relatively unified West European economy. So they say, look, your problem is just the Soviet Union to Britain and France. You don't have to worry about West Germany. 
And if you look at our history, meaning the American history, is, is you form a, an economic federation um, and then perhaps a security federation, conf- sorry, confederation. Uh, and that's how you defend yourself, that you're, you, you're too weak as independent nation states to deal either with your economic problems or with your um, security problems. And the British and the French don't really want to deal with the economic integration thing. They're keener on a security confederation, but they want it to say, well, we need you, though, to be part of that security confederation, too, that we can't actually defend ourselves. And I still think part of that is about their worries about Germany. And it's only it's only in 1949 um, the Truman administration shifts its position and says effectively, okay. But they're not going to join a security confederation being on the other side of the world. Is is they're going to make a commitment in the security alliance that is NATO? And eventually, um, you know, in the middle of the 50s, that West Germany ends up joining NATO um, as well. But I think it, it does mean, particularly after um, the French lose their nerve, or the French Parliament really loses its nerve about the European defence community that there's this kind of security vacuum in the European project, if that's what we um, call it. The security is just left out, that NATO is going to take care of providing West European security. Now, that's made more complicated in the 60s, by the middle of the 60s, because President Charles de Gaulle takes France out of NATO's joint command in either 1965 or 1966, so at that point, that there's a kind of mis a different kind of misalignment emerging because the French would like Western Europe to act like a security confederation, perhaps even a security federation, not just a confederation. They don't think that NATO is up to the job. That they think that it involves Western Europe having two confrontational relations with the Soviet Union, and there's an echo of that would be later in sort of Macron's attitude towards Russia by the end of the, the, the 2010s. But I think that leaving the energy issues aside, it's not too much of a muddle through the end of the Cold War years, even though France's position is an anomaly. The problem really comes in the post-Cold War world um, when you've got to deal with the independent countries in Eastern Europe that are now going to sit between Germany and the Russian border. And as we know, there's been a lot of, shall we say, territorial tumult in those in that part of Europe between empires and independent states and independent states emerging and disappearing. You know, like look at the way in which Poland disappears, you know, like for the best part of of two centuries at um, a certain point in European history. And here I think we see the difficulty in which the European Union gets into where it's not only dependent on NATO, on the United States, ultimately providing a security guarantee for those Eastern European countries because it can't do it itself, is all the members of the European Union aren't members of NATO either. So that involves a particular set um, of issues that actually, in some ways, strangely, I think, get centred on Ireland because of Ireland's unwillingness to ratify the Lisbon Treaty initially because of issues to do with this security alignment question. And then it comes to a head with the Ukraine question. And I know that Ukraine wasn't ever going to have European Union membership. It was 
from 2009, the EU was negotiating associate membership for the European Union. But it still seems to me to have been astonishingly naive on the European Union's point of view position to think, okay, we're going to do this and we're not going to imagine a scenario in which Ukraine is in NATO. And we can't do that because by the time the associate membership is being negotiated, the French and the Germans have already vetoed Ukraine being in NATO. And obviously, if NATO membership had been pushed, that would have just brought forward Putin's reaction because he wouldn't have tolerated NATO membership for Ukraine. But I, I think it is really significant that if we go back to the history of the Eastern European states up to the end of the Cold War, and I'm including in that the post-Soviet states, not just the post-Warsaw Pact states, they all either joined NATO first, like Poland and Hungary, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and then joined the European Union, or like the Baltic states, that they joined the European Union and NATO at the same time. And I think that's quite revealing. And this idea that's there with the Ukraine associate membership that you can do the EU bit first and we won't really just engage, we'll disengage from the, the NATO part. I think it was highly predictable that that went as wrong as it did in, in 2013-14. And I know that in the end, the associate membership for Ukraine came through, but only after Ukraine had lost Crimea and only after it had de facto lost quite a bit of Donbass um, region so that its, its territorial integrity uh, you know, had been um, fundamentally compromised. And I, I think if we then sort of inject the French position back into this, what you can see with Macron in particular, but it's there really with Chirac, is a deep frustration that the EU has got to deal with these East European countries that have got, from the French point of view, overly neurotic views about Russia. I mean, obviously, the Polish etc. point of view has now been vindicated against that interpretation in Paris, but I think that was the interpretation in Paris, that French governments have wanted a closer relationship with Russia, and they've wanted, by the time that Macron's talking about these issues in 2019, he's pretty much saying that the European project, European sovereignty, depends on détente with Russia, and yet the Warsaw, former Warsaw Pact and the former Soviet states are seeing this in a very, very different light, Hungary perhaps accepted. And, and they want a European Union that is geopolitically much more serious, much more focused on security, but they want it to be directed against Russia, whereas France wants it directed in the Mediterranean and to North Africa. The last question, of, uh, of course, is the consequence of that, which is kind of an interpretation of the moment that we're in. Because at the one hand, you could say that now we see left-wing parties in Germany and Denmark say, well, now we must spend 2% of our GDP on NATO. We must really, this is kind of an insurance company and we didn't fulfill our obligations for, for, for many years. We can't rely on the Americans anymore, John Bolton said. America, Trump would have, have withdrawn America from, from NATO had he won a, a second term. So it seems that on the one hand that inspired by this moment, there is a transformative capacity that I'm surprised that even you saw what they agreed on in Versailles saying that we can take all war refugees. We can take all war refugees from Ukraine. So there's one interpretation saying, well, this is a big moment that has the capacity to change Europe fundamentally. And there's another interpretation saying, well, 
actually all the divisions that were there before we got drunken on, on unity and on innocence, because we're innocent in this conflict. The, the Russians are the evil ones here. That all the divisions that you outline in the book between aristocratic excess, democratic excess, rising inequality, they're still there. This is just a moment where we're forgetting them. And I know this is a very difficult question, but it seems to me decisive. Do you see this as a potentially transformative moment where we rid ourselves of the complacency? Or do you see this as another big Hollywood moment in our history and we'll be back to where we were in half a year? I actually do think it's quite transformative for this reason, is if we go back to the 1970s, where we can see a lot of these issues, both on the geopolitics of the energy side, on the clear beginnings um, of rising economic inequality, the impact of rising economic inequality on Western democracies. You have a decade of pretty fraught politics that goes, I would say, then into the 1980s. And then from the middle of the 80s, it starts to get easier, partly because the you know, economically reforming governments in Europe, like the Mrs. Thatcher's government in Britain, actually succeed in you know, relative terms anyway, in, in doing what the, they, the reforms that they're direct against the trade unions without precipitating kind of like a general crisis of social relations, shall we say. But I think the big reason is is because there's an energy interlude really from the middle of the 1980s that I would say then runs through to the early 2000s. And then we have some crisis years, the middle of the 2000s through to 2008. And then on the energy front, although the shale oil and gas boom are very disruptive geopolitically, very disruptive, is that the shale oil boom in particular takes the oil problem away for the world economy and Chinese gas demand hasn't really taken off by that point in the same way which it has in the last couple of years. So I would say that we forget about how difficult all this is when the energy problems recede, when something happens on the energy front. And so in in the 80s, it's more supply from North Sea, more supply from Alaska, more supply from uh, Mexico not as difficult as dealing with Middle Eastern producers. I don't think the energy difficulties are are on any front whatsoever going to let up this time. So I don't think they're going to let up in terms of the supply problems around oil. I don't think they're going to let up in terms of people understanding the geopolitics of Russia's position around energy. And I don't think that they're going to let up in terms of the imperative for the energy transition for climate change reasons and in some ways they all might lead in the direction of reduced energy consumption so i suspect that the complacency can't come back that in that sense to go back to the limits to growth i think in some ways that was like 50 years ahead of its time in some ways it was 50 years ahead of its time because it was wrong (laughs) um but but i think that, that, that that those arguments underestimated how much it was actually a a geopolitical crisis that was going on in the 1970s, that resource limits weren't actually there in the same way and the ecological degradation wasn't sufficient in the short to medium term to really bring any seismic changes about. But I think that that has changed now. I think the energy problems are still significantly geopolitical, but they also actually are 
more actual resource constrained uh, and the ecological problems in relation to climate are on another scale than were imagined in the 1970s. So I find it hard to think that we're going back to complacency. Hmm. I choose to interpret this end of complacency or this potential end of complacency as a kind of hopeful sign that will mobilize the best in ourselves to meet some of the challenges we have. I know the background for that is not particularly hopeful, but for anyone who wants to educate themselves and get inspiration for how to get out of these dark moments, I recommend your book, uh, Disorder Hard Times in the 21st Century. And I thank you for your work and for the inspiration and for your time tonight. Thank you so much, Tom, for talking to us. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Det var så min samtale med Helen Thompson, og jeg vil stærkt anbefale, at man læser hendes bog Disorder Hard Times in the 21st Century, hvis man synes, det vi snakkede om var interessant. Vi kom kun ind på nogle temaer i bogen. Der er masser af andre temaer, som hun tager meget vidt på en ekstremt tankevækkende fasong. I næste uge skal vi tale med en af avisens andre gamle venner, nemlig Thomas Piketty, som netop har udgivet en kort historie om lighed, på fransk, og den kommer sørme også på dansk, og det er faktisk på informationsforlag. Vi tager så den store historie om, hvordan vi ikke skal se det 20. århundrede som udvikling af ulighed, men som en vej mod et mere retfærdigt samfund. Og hvis vi vil fortsætte vejen mod et mere retfærdigt samfund, så skal vi bryde radikalt op med nogle af de dogmer, vi har etableret de sidste 50 år, siger Piketty, og gribe tilbage til noget, vi faktisk kunne for 100 år siden. Jeg håber, I også vil lytte med der. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg, og det var igen i denne uge Anne Pilgaard Petersen, der stod for teknikken og fik alt mit rod til at hænge nogenlunde sammen. Tak for nu.